0: Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Many of our stories and myths we have what we could call the heroic or noble death. We like our heroes to be victorious, and if they have to die at the end of their tale, it should be in a way that only enhances their victory. One of my favorite movies as a young man growing up in the 1990s was the movie Braveheart. The noble warrior William Wallace fighting the oppressive English king at the end is captured. Is given one last chance to confess his treachery and instead cries out freedom. I won't try to do it in the way he did. I don't I don't have that quite in me, but he calls out and then the executioner's axe falls. It's stirring and inspiring. Perhaps this All Saints Sunday we could think of the the martyred reformers, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. We're told that as they prepared to face the stake and the fire, Latimer looked at Ridley and said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall light this day, or we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Strong words. Strength and nobility in the face of death and suffering. It's inspiring. That is not what we have in the Garden of Gethsemane. What we have in this dark garden is an account that can leave us confused. Unsure of how our Savior could feel the way that he did could say what he said and pray what he prayed. This is Jesus, after all, the one who stood before powerful leaders and called them out on their hypocrisy, who challenged them openly and directly. He's the one who challenged norms and long-held man-made traditions, seemingly risking his life in the process. And now he kneels and prays for his fate to pass him by. With such an intensity that Luke tells us it's as if his sweat fell from him like drops of blood. What are we to make of this? What are we to make of this shaken savior? After all, if you were to imagine the death of a hero, this is not what you would write. more reason to believe that the account is genuine. You wouldn't make this up. It is an absolutely genuine picture of Jesus. It is a real picture of him preparing for his death. And so how do we deal with this genuine picture? Well, the first thing we want to do is be honest about what Jesus was experiencing here. This was genuine despair. Jesus was actually feeling, as he says in verses 33 and 34, greatly distressed and troubled, sorrowful even to death. The words themselves perhaps don't quite match what was happening in Jesus that night. His experience was absolute agony. How? How could this be? How could God incarnate experience the agony of Gethsemane? How could he pray that the hour and the cup would pass by him? Didn't he know better? Didn't he know what awaited him? Wasn't he ready for it? These questions come as we read this passage and our discomfort with the scene rises. It's a funny thing to think about. It seems to me that most non-Christians, when they think of Jesus, what they struggle with is the idea that he could be God. For Christians, many of us at least, I think it's the other way around. We don't struggle with the idea of the divinity of Jesus, but the humanity of Jesus. It's what makes this scene so uneasy. And so we try to explain it away. We try to dismiss it or we throw out poor answers like this was just Jesus' human side experiencing this moment. Not his divine side. As if there are two sides that can be separated that smoothly. And it is a crucial error. As J.I. Packer notes for us, he did and endured everything, including his sufferings on the cross, in the unity of his divine human persons. Jesus being divine was impeccable. He could not sin, but this does not mean he could not be tempted. Being human, Jesus could not conquer temptation without a struggle, but being divine, it was his nature to do the Father's will. The point is that there is no point where Jesus is not divine or not human. And so we cannot just brush this moment aside. We cannot try to explain it away as something just his personhood experienced. And still we ask, didn't he know? Wouldn't he have been ready then? If he's divine, certainly. Well, he certainly knew what was coming. He foretold it multiple times. In Gethsemane, though, Jesus is getting his first taste of what is to come. And we're often ready for something to happen, at least we tell ourselves. But then when it's about to happen, the experience is more than we could imagine. And that could be a happy moment, like your wedding, or the birth of a child, or perhaps a more challenging one, like a Surgery or diagnosis. We people struggle to understand just what is before us. Jesus knew his death would come and he knew that he would be dying on behalf of all mankind. But in Gethsemane, he experiences the truth that what is to come is far more than physical death. It would be terrifying, I imagine, to stand before a judge as a criminal about to receive a sentence. Or to stand as a child, if we can remember, before an angry parent awaiting the punishment for the lie we just told. But Jesus wasn't standing before God bearing one sin like those examples. He is before God bearing every sin that was ever Or ever would be committed. Paul tells us that Jesus became sin. And it is that reality which led him to inexpressible agony. It is that reality that we cannot simply brush aside. And friends, it is a good thing we can't brush it aside. Because to do so would would be to rob ourselves of the goodness of Jesus. Because in this moment, we learn two things. One, it is no sin to suffer. Certainly, sometimes our suffering is caused by sin, either our own or someone else's. But the reality of suffering in our lives is not necessarily evidence that we have sinned. And so we need not be ashamed of our suffering or try to hide it or the reality of what we are feeling. We don't need to hide these things. Christians are not meant to be Stoics. It is not a Christian virtue to keep a stiff upper lip no matter what is happening in your life. Somewhere along the, the way, we got this idea that trusting in God means never expressing fear or acknowledging our suffering or our temptation to run away from what we must not run away from. But that's not what Jesus models for us. Jesus suffered greatly, and he expressed that suffering to his father. And not only to his father, but to his inner circle as well. He shared his sorrow and his suffering with James and John and Peter. It was not something he hid from. To sin or to suffer is not a sin. And we should feel able to express that to our father and to one another, to our fellow believers. And since Jesus did not hide from his suffering, we also have the great comfort of knowing that we have a Savior who has truly suffered and who knows what it is to feel genuine temptation and genuine anguish. He is not a God who is far off and removed from the realities of life. He came and lived as one of us and experienced more intensely or more acutely everything it is that we face. And that means, as the author of Hebrews writes, because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a Savior who knows suffering, who knows temptation, and so we need not be ashamed of the presence of these things. Rather, we can turn to our Savior as we would a friend. And a friend who has been where we are and who knows the way out, and in this case, is the way out. Do not run from the fact that Jesus genuinely expressed agony in Gethsemane. But thank him that he was willing to experience the full freight of sin for us and is able to comfort us with the comfort that he himself has received. The amazingly good news is that in this genuine despair, Jesus remained genuinely faithful. It was not a lack of faithfulness that caused Jesus to pray that the Father would remove this cup from him or that the hour would pass him by. It was a genuine prayer in hope that there might be another way. But even in that prayer, he prays, not what I will, but what you will. He is perfectly, genuinely faithful to the Father. And I think, This doesn't really make a ton of sense to us. How at all this would be possible. Because we know that when he speaks of the hour, he is speaking of his crucifixion. The moment of his indescribable suffering. And we know from the imagery that is used throughout scripture that the cup he is about to drink from is the cup of God's wrath against sin. Jesus knows this. It's why he is in anguish and yet he remains perfectly faithful how how is that possible it's because he knows his father he knows his father when jesus begins to pray mark records that jesus opens his prayer not with an address like oh most holy god we're powerful and mighty Lord, as, as fitting and, and, and true as those things are, that's not what he starts with. He prays, Abba, Father. It is the language used of intimacy, it is the language used by one who knows and loves his Father and who knows that he is loved by his Father. It's a heartfelt prayer. It's like the the child who looks up at their own father with tenderness and love in their voice. Abba, Father. Jesus knows his father. And he knows the character of God. That God is love and that he moves in love to deliver his people from sin and death. And one day, as we heard in our Revelation reading, he will wipe away every tear. Jesus is faithful to his beloved Father. It's beautiful. It's an amazing thing to behold. But we have another question, don't we? They just keep coming when we read this passage. How could we call the father loving in the same breath when we acknowledge the reality of his wrath? How can these things be? What loving father would see his son experiencing this agony? Many in the church have struggled with this very question. And many have said that the wrath of God is a myth. It's a misrepresentation of the nature of God that he cannot be both love and have wrath. Well, friends... I want to tell you that it is impossible for God to be love unless he has wrath. The truth of the wrath of God, its existence, is evidence that he is love. It is the love that he has for his creation, for his people, that moves him to feel wrath against sin and against death and against the state of the world. And his level of wrath is perfectly commensurate with the seriousness of the offense that he sees. As what he created good has been tarred with the sinfulness of people. It is not the wrath of God that should make us recoil. In fact, we should praise him that he hasn't. Imagine if he didn't. Imagine what life would be like. If he just washed his hands of everything and walked away and said, Have it your way, folks, you're on your own. And so many actually believe God has done that, he just kind of started everything up and we messed it up and so he just walked away. That, that is not hope, is it? It is not wrath that should make us recoil because the opposite of love is not wrath, it's indifference. But God is love, and so he is not indifferent, but moves to deal with what plagues his people, and he does it in the most gracious and loving way possible by taking it upon himself. That is the nature and character of our God. That is the God that Jesus knows. He knows his Father. Do you? Do you know your Heavenly Father? Do you know his nature, that he is love? Jesus has existed in a perfect love relationship with God the Father since before the foundation of the earth, and so he trusts him. Do you? Do you trust your heavenly Father? In moments of suffering and anguish, in moments of joy, do you trust your heavenly Father? Do you recoil at the idea of the wrath of God? Or do you praise the Lord that he loved you enough to never be indifferent to sin and suffering and death? Do you praise Jesus for bearing the wrath for you? And since he did that, you who are in Christ Jesus can stand before the throne of God, not covered with your own sin, but clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus remained faithful, bearing the full weight of the Father's wrath because he knows that the Father is good and all he works is good. Here's the last thing I want to leave us with today. Jesus experienced genuine despair and he was genuinely faithful in the face of his genuine need. Jesus needed his Father and so he cried out to him. Knowing as we do that Jesus is in agony and that the cross is mere hours away, it can be tempting for us to believe that the Father ignored his Son in this moment. After all, that's what we think, right? When the, the answer to prayer doesn't come or doesn't come in the way that we want it to, it's perhaps better to say. That God doesn't hear our cries and so clearly he's ignoring us, that's what we think. And so we think maybe he didn't hear Jesus either. Maybe he's ignoring him. But again, the author of Hebrews is helpful to us here. He writes In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. He was not ignored, he was heard. The author is pointing at Gethsemane and saying that Jesus was heard. I doubt many of us would walk away from this passage thinking that. But of course he was. It just didn't happen in the way that we expected it to. And the point I want to make here is twofold. One, don't assume that silence in the moment is a rejection of the prayer. The father didn't comfort his son in the way that we might expect. He didn't answer his prayer right then and there, but he answered it in the best possible way, didn't he? He raised him from the dead. God answers our prayers in the best way possible. And thank God that that is often not how we would answer them. It's what our father does. here's the second part. If our Father is to answer our prayers, we have to know our genuine need as well. Jesus, in his need, called out to the Father. By contrast, we have James and John and Peter. Three men who at various times have announced their faithfulness to Jesus and their willingness to suffer for him. Jesus and John declared that they would drink from the cup Jesus drinks from. Peter has proudly stated that even if he must stand alone, he will never fall away from Jesus. We'll hear more about that next week. Three proud, strong men. And they can't even stay awake for an hour. And what does Jesus say to them? Verse 38 Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. He calls them to watch and pray. The Spirit is willing, and so just like our Savior in His anguish, so in our need, we are to come before our Father in prayer. Because of the weakness of our flesh, it's not something we will do naturally, and so we must ask for His Spirit to strengthen us to continue in prayer, to help us to not give up praying just because it seems like our prayers are not being answered. Friends, when the Father is saying no to one of our prayers, he will make it clear. And until that happens, we are to keep praying. We are to watch and pray. And when we fall asleep, when we fall asleep and are too busy to pray, or in other words, when we fail to live up to the call to watch and pray, we can pray yet again. We can come before our Father yet again because Jesus experienced the agony and took the freight of sin upon Himself, not hiding His suffering, but openly acknowledging His need. Because of that, even in our failure, we have a Father we can speak with and come before and receive His forgiveness and His love and His grace. Watch and pray. The night in Gethsemane is not the stuff of Hollywood drama. It's not even the stuff of the epic poems of the ancient world. It is far, far better than all of that. Than any of the myth-making that we could possibly dream up. It turns out that the truth is stranger, and in this case, far better than fiction. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus reveals the reality of the Son of God in his suffering, in his faithfulness, and in his need. And since he did that for the Father's glory, we can receive the Father's loving grace. The grace he extends to a wayward people whom Jesus loved to the point of death, to the point of agony. And he did it so that we might know the Father That he knows and loves for all eternity let's pray father we give you thanks and praise even for gethsemane father we thank you that jesus came before you and so shows us that we can come before you and we thank you that he was willing to take this upon himself that we might not have to We pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep coming before you, that we would know your love, whether we are in times of joy or times of difficulty, that we would keep watching and praying, coming before you, knowing that you are love and that all you work is good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (laughs)